last week, basically the summary was, as human beings we learned, created in God's image, you are created for relationships. They're part of your DNA. It's part of how you were made because God is, exists in community. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And because you are created in His image, you are also a relational being. Uh, you need relationships in order to exist and be fully human. That's basically, in essence, the summary of laying the foundation for our series that we discussed last week. Tonight, we're going to shift... Uh, and change the topic and, and talk about why relationships are so difficult and hard and messy. Jason, if you say I'm created for relationships, okay, then why are they so hard? That's the topic tonight, and to cover that, we're going to look at the passage that was read, Genesis chapter 3. And before we dig into that, let me pray and ask God to help us tonight. Father, you tell us that we are a people that need a word from the outside. We um, need to hear from you. We need the wisdom of your word. You also tell us that the Bible is breathed out by you and that it's useful for teaching, correcting, training, rebuking, and all righteousness. You, you tell us that the Bible and the Word of God does all those things, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it penetrates the bone and the marrow. And we pray that you would do that with your Word in our hearts tonight. Uh, we need that. That might be um, not an easy thing, but it's something we ask that you would do because that's what's going to lead us to change. And at the very same time, I pray that tonight you would show us Jesus through this passage. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So this past weekend, I was out exercising. Yes, I know you find that hard to believe that I'm trying to get in some sort of shape, but I am, and I was listening to some old school rap or something like that on my earphones. Uh, people know that I like old school rap, but actually I wasn't listening to old school rap. I think it was ACDC on this particular day. So anyway, I, I go to those extremes, rap and rock. But I was rounding the corner uh, near my neighborhood, and I see this car pull in the driveway, and two girls get out of the car, and their dad gets out of the car, Okay. Um, I need to scoot back her up. Okay. So I'm rounding the corner. I see two girls, 11, 12, 1, 9, or 10, something like that, that age range. They get out of the car. Their dad gets out of the, the driver's side, and they come together, and there's this huge bear hug. Okay, and it's not like this bear hug that's just a little bear hug where you kind of just hug and release. It's one of those extended hugs. And it was as if they did not want to let go. And so, as I'm witnessing this, listening to ACDC, <laughs> I'm actually getting somewhat emotional. Um, 
And here's why I'm emotional, because it's very clear and obvious what's going on. Because about the time they hug, out walks this woman from the front door of the house, and she kind of raises up her hand, and the girls come and run in the house. The guy, the dad, gets in the car and leaves the driveway. Very clear. They were divorced, and the girls were with their father for the weekend, and he was dropping them back off at their mother's house. Now listen, the Bible says that there are biblical reasons for divorce. I totally get that, okay? But as I'm running, all I can think about is this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why it struck me so deeply. And from a very young age, you have learned that that's not the way it's supposed to be. I think about my girls, and I can't tell you the number of times that they have run through the doors of our house from school or out playing in the neighborhood, and they've run into our house completely coming apart, not with a cry like I skinned my knee, a hurt cry, but with a very painful cry of rejection. Sarah told me she didn't want to be my friend anymore. Sarah told me that I couldn't be part of their club, that I couldn't be part of their friend group. See, all of us from, a, from very early on have felt the pain and the tension and the heartache that come along with relationships. Some of you are already experiencing that, and you're three weeks in, and you feel lonely, you feel afraid, you feel rejected because the people you thought were your friends and you thought cared about and loved you, maybe they don't, and you feel like you're on the outside looking in on this particular friend group. You see, the truth is, every one of our relationships, even the best relationships, the best relationships you can think of with your parents or siblings or friends or when you get married, and maybe your parents have a great marriage, whatever it is, the best relationships in some way, shape, or form are messy. Some way, shape, or form, they are dysfunctional. Why? Well, the biblical world and life view says this. Genesis chapter 3 is a very significant event in the life of world history. Because Christians say the reason why our best relationships are messy and often dysfunctional is because something happened in Genesis chapter 3. And that is sin entered the world. And so the reason why things are so difficult is because we've got this thing living inside us called sin. And because of that, we have this tendency to degrade and ruin what God has made glorious. Listen, tonight, it's going to be, it's not the easiest passage to talk about. Um, But I I will say this, I think it's absolutely necessary. And I think that it will help you actually make sense of your relationships and the messiness and the brokenness that you feel. So that's my hope. Three things. If you've got an outline printed before you, the reason for relational mess, the result of relational mess, and the remedy of relational mess. Look at number one, the reason for relational mess. Look at uh, verse 10. And so at this point, 
things are, are not going well. Adam and Eve, this is way different than Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where we were last week. Now Adam and Eve have decided to rebel against God's authority and the result is absolutely staggering if you look at this chapter and if you listen to it being read. Because God confronts Adam and Adam says, I am afraid. There is paralyzing fear. And the reason why this is so staggering, because I want you to think about this, Two, one chapter ago, God's relationship with His people is characterized by love and they cherished one another and they delighted in one another and they had this loving relationship. And now that same relationship is characterized by fear and insecurity and anxiety. And the question is, why? Well, simply put, Adam and Eve now, instead of finding their identity and their worth and their their significance and value in God, which is the way they were designed and the way we're designed as human beings, instead of finding their identity there in God, the way it's supposed to be, they started to turn and find their identity in other things. In other words, we see the essence of sin at the very core is when we worship something else or someone else other than God. You know, the Bible says that every single human being in this room is a worshiper. It's not a matter of whether of if you worship or whether or not you are worshiping. The issue, rather, is what you worship. Let me illustrate. There's an Ivy League counselor, and he's having this conversation with a pastor friend of his, and as they are talking, the Ivy League counselor says that he experiences and deals with an extraordinary high rate of depression on Ivy League campuses. The pastor, as they're dialoguing, of course, the natural question was, why do you think that is? And the counselor responds, that's easy. The Ivy League students are coming from high schools in which they weren't the best athletes. They weren't the most popular. They weren't the most social or relational people in their schools, but they were smart. And they were at the very top of their class academically. But then they get to the Ivy League schools, and everybody's smart. And everyone's at the top of their class academically, and now someone has to get B's and C's. And it causes an identity crisis for that particular student. Everybody shapes their identity and their worth around something. These students were not that great socially and athletically, but they found their identity and their worth and value in academics. That became who they were. That was their identity. But when they got to campus and that identity was threatened or removed, some of you felt that already as you come in here. Maybe it's not academics, but something else. When that was removed or threatened, they completely come apart and cannot handle it. The point is this. Insecurity is always the result of placing your worth, your trust, or identity in something else besides God. Think about it. When you worship or find your identity in something that's impermanent or changeable, 
The only result of your life is to live in fear and anxiety. Why? Because you know you could lose it in a moment's notice. And because you know you could lose it, you are driven by the fact that you could lose that and you drive yourself crazy and you work yourself to death staying up all hours of the night in order to try to keep that thing that you feel like is making your life work. So what does this have to do with relationships? Friends, insecurity is the number one killer in relationships, hands down. Most of your relationships, the reason why there's relational mess comes down to this one fact. You worship the dating relationship you're in or the person that you're in relationship with rather than worshiping and finding your identity in God. Let me work that out. You worship and find your identity in that dating relationship which is impermanent which is changeable. What do I mean by that? The Bible says you're not married. You don't have a ring. You're not in covenant with that other person. Therefore, they are free to leave at any time. And that's why dating sucks. (laughs) Because you can bail at any time. And you know that. You might be dating today, but that doesn't mean that you'll be dating tomorrow. And so because of that fact, because it's impermanent, if you build your identity on that, Fear rules the day in your relationship. Anxiety rules the day because what is driving you is the fear of not losing the relationship. And friends, it is killing some of your relationships. It is actually killing killing some really good relationships. For example, guys, when she broke up with you, and you immediately started texting her a billion times, telling, you how much, telling her how much you loved her and how you want her back and how your life has changed. Instead of actually winning her back, here's the thing, instead of communicating love and affection to her, that actually just screams insecurity. That actually screams, I don't know who I am without you. And instead of bringing her back in, it actually pushes her further away. This is why the person who desperately needs friends never gets friends. Because the people that they're trying to be friends with cannot handle their worship. Friends, most of our relationships, what's wrong with them is not that you don't care enough about them but it's simply that you care too much about them. And it actually suffocates the relationship and kills it. That's the first thing. The reason for our relational mess is insecurity. Secondly, the result of relational mess, number two, look at verses one through six. At the very beginning of the Bible, Christianity lays out this incredible foundational truth for the world. God is the creator, and human beings are the creature. He's creator, we are created. He is the king, we are the subjects. Someone's in charge of the world, and it's not me, and it's not you. 
Adam and Eve knew that. They knew that to be true. They knew they weren't the king of the universe and that God was their creator. But then in the story we see the serpent, Satan, come in the form of a serpent and come to Adam and Eve and say, what did God just say to you? And Eve replies and says, well, he said if we ate from this particular tree in the garden then we would surely die. And Satan comes and says, no, God's lying to you. He's holding out on you. He's trying to keep you from having all the fun. You will not surely die. God says one thing, Satan says another, and here is the crucial point that I want you to see in this part of the passage. Eve looks at those two options and says, I'll decide. She looks at those two options and says, I have the right to do what I want to do. And in that moment, to you, that might not seem like that big a deal, but it is a cosmic shift from away from, away from the way... A cosmic shift away from the... I don't... I don't <laughs> That's not the way things were supposed to be. She's moving away from submitting to God as her king to submitting and putting herself on the throne. And from this point in the Bible, self-centeredness became the enemy in all of our relationships. Every single conflict, every single fight, in disagreement, and break up in some way, shape, or form can be traced back and find its roots in self-centeredness. Yes, I agree that some self-centeredness is unavoidable and maybe even good and right at some point to take care of yourself. I totally get that. But what I want you to see here is what this passage is showing us is that the fundamental operating system inside every single one of us, me included, from this point on, from Genesis 3 on, is I am at the center of the universe. I call the shots. I live for me. I am fundamentally committed to self. And if you live out of that, with that mentality and from that operating system, it will absolutely destroy and ruin your relationships. How so? Well, think about it. If you're approaching relationships as if you're the king of the universe from self-centeredness, you're inevitably going to reduce people to one or two things. People are either going to be a vehicle to you getting what you want or an obstacle that keep you from getting what you want. Think about it this way. If your primary demand from your boyfriend is that he always give you attention, then when you go to the party and he only talks to you and no one else, and he stands by your side and never leaves, when he texts you regularly and always responds immediately to your text, when he makes his weekend plans solely around you, your deepest desires are getting met, he's a vehicle for giving you what you want, how are you treating him, how is the relationship at that point? It's good. 
You're happy with Him. You're excited to be with Him. You're affectionate towards Him. But let's say that He doesn't meet your demands for attention. Let's say at the party, He goes and He talks to His friends more than He talks to you. Or if He doesn't text you back within 20 minutes. Or instead of going out with you for the weekend, He goes out with His fraternity brothers. And now instead of giving you and being a vehicle of you getting what you want, now He's an obstacle to that happening. And now how is the relationship? Not good. Because you're frustrated. You're angry. You're disappointed. You're irritated at Him. And you see, doesn't that explain that couple and we all know them? We all have these people around us that we know that behave in mind-boggling and very confusing ways? You know what I'm talking about? The couple that on the one hand, they're so into each other that it makes you want to vomit. <laughs> and they're attached at the hip and it's like a mini marriage and they've cut off all of their friends and they're so in love with each other. But it's also the couple, the couple that goes nuclear in the Martin Stockard parking lot at 2 a.m. <laughs> And you can actually hear them from your room <laughs> as they're yelling at one another. It's the couple that breaks up and then they, what, get back together and then they break up and then they work it out and get back together. And the question is, how can they be so obsessed with one another on the one hand, but yet on the other hand, so explosive? Well, think about it. It's because... They're totally in love and into each other when that person is a vehicle to them getting what their selfish needs want. But the moment that that person becomes an obstacle to meeting their selfish needs, there's an explosion and they turn to hating one another. Friends, self-centeredness causes us to use other people to meet our own selfish needs. And when that happens and they stop meeting our needs, we either break up, we ditch them, find a new roommate, find a new friend group, whatever it is that we do, but we simply withdraw because they quit being of service and use to us. You see, the reason for our relational mess is insecurity. The result... If self, it's self-centeredness. Thirdly and finally, the remedy. So what does God, how does He respond to ruined sinners? This is an incredible part of the passage that I absolutely love. Look at verse 9. Okay, Think about what's happened. They've rebelled against God, their Creator. And in a sense, the world was blown to bits. Okay? And nothing's been the same since this event in Genesis chapter 3. And you would think God would have written them off or God would have turned His back on them or just totally struck them down right there on the spot and say, I'm done with you. But that's not what happens. God goes looking for them. God pursues ruined, broken sinners. Verse 9, where are you? You see, this is the good news of the Gospel. From beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, we see a God who aggressively is committed and pursues His people. 
And not a people that are awesome. And not a people who always have it all together and who can keep up. He pursues people who are afraid and who are full of sin and full of shame. I heard a story a while back from This American Life. It was about a 32-year-old man by the name of Maurice Griffin. He grew up in Northern California. He was abandoned by his uh, family at a very young age, as a very young child, in and out of orphanages throughout his early childhood. And at one point, this family comes in and has a real draw and attraction to him, particularly the mother, finds a real connection with Maurice. But for some reason, it took him like 10 years at visiting him regularly in this orphanage. Finally, they decided to take him in as a foster child. He was with them for four years. They were making plans to adopt him, and two months before the adoption was legal, the social worker came to check on Maurice, and while they were there, Maurice told the social worker that he wanted his mom to spank him because he wanted to be like his brothers and be part of the family. And you see the problem with that, he never was spanked, by the way, but just with that statement, the social worker completely freaked out because it's illegal in California to spank a foster child. And so the social worker looked at Maurice and said, hey, let's go to McDonald's and get something to eat and we'll continue to talk. Social worker gets in the car with Maurice, heads away from the home, and the mom and the family never see him again. As you can imagine, he's ripped away from this family that he wanted to be adopted into. His childhood was in and out of foster homes and was actually pretty terrible. Twenty years had passed. His mom and the family had never stopped looking for him. Twenty years later, MySpace comes on the scene. Anybody remember MySpace? (laughs) Comes on the scene. The mom tracks him down, finds him, starts emailing him. They start talking on the phone. And she basically says to him, Can I adopt you now? I want to finish what we have started. You were taken from me. And I never quit on you. And when they finally arranged to meet after 20 years, she looks at this now grown man and she says, you're mine forever. And the reason why I love that story is because it's an amazing picture of pursuit. And my question tonight is how would you feel if you were loved in that way for that long? That no matter what you did or how you felt, that love was coming after you. That love was pursuing you. That is how the Bible talks about God pursuing His people that are in Jesus Christ. And when that love gets a hold of you and you realize and you are assured of that love and you realize God's commitment to you and when you realize His affection for you, that radically changes everything in your life. 
Because before, for example, maybe you were so needy of a person that you were always sucking the life out of everyone else. But now that you are in Jesus, you're no longer so needy because now He fills you. And people and what they say about you are no longer the keys to your happiness. Now you can actually serve people instead of demanding that they serve you. Or before, let's say you were autonomous and very controlling and selfish. You were in charge of your life. And you actually were panic, had panic attacks and full of anxiety and fear, which tends to happen when we play God. It drives us absolutely crazy. But in Jesus, that changes because for the first time you can find relief and rest and say that my life is not about me. And that someone else is on the throne in my life. Friends, don't you see that this is way different, what I'm talking about, than simply just intellectually believing there's a God. Way different, because just believing God exists doesn't do this to your soul. You see, it's only when you see God coming down out of heaven in the form of Jesus Christ, putting on flesh and substituting Himself on the cross for you, for your rebellion, for your insecurity, and for your selfishness. It's then that your life starts to have meaning and purpose and this goes all the way to your soul. That's the Gospel. That's the remedy. That's the remedy for your selfishness and that's the remedy for your insecurity in all of your relationships. That's an invitation. Let's pray.